heaven, who goes there? And uh, we are starting week two in this series that we were a part of, and I want to just invite us to attune our hearts to, I would think, don't you think, a pretty important question. For all that goes on in our life, for all that we do, knocking it down from week to week, making ends meet, pursuing that life of happiness or fulfillment, taking care of our kids, championing our adult kids, taking care of our parents as they age, whatever it is that's in your wheelhouse of responsibility from week to week, uh, you're busy people, you're consumed with a lot of things, a lot of questions. But don't you think, don't you think that this question right here is a pretty important question when all is said and done? That, uh, that is, of course, if you believe that there's a heaven. You see, most people, you think, believe that there is a heaven, though things are shifting some today. And the whole subject of heaven um, is seen by some people as a bit of a, a crutch. Like, it's not really something that is um, a reality, and it's there to make people feel better. So when you ask the question, who goes to heaven, it's like, well, that's sort of nice. But there's something inside of the human being that says there has to be more. There's something of an afterlife that hangs out there. And you can try as you want to squelch it and put it down, but it's there. And that's why Ecclesiastes 3.11 just simply says that God has put eternity into the human heart. But in our culture today, not everybody is actually believing that. I came across um, some words from a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and a parent guidance counselor by the name of Erica Komazar uh, a couple weeks ago. And she works with children, but she herself is an atheist. And so she doesn't believe in God. She doesn't believe in the afterlife. And um, she said this. She says, I'm often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? And as an atheist, she gives this response. She says, my answer is always the same to these parents concerning their kids. Lie. The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it doesn't help children. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous and incomprehensible loss, if that there's death. So there you go. There's one solution. If you're mixing and mingling, maybe you're in that camp today. Maybe you have a friend or a relative that's in that camp. Is like, yeah, heaven, that idea that there's a place that you go after you die is, is, is sort of a crutch. It's, it's nice to believe and you can sort of lean into it. But the reality is once you die, that's it. Annihilationism, as they call it. You're, you're gone. You cease to exist. You go back to being dust and that's it. And if your kid asks you about death, well, they're children. They can't process that. So lie. Tell them that there's a heaven. 
What do you say? What do you do with your children? What do you do with the own searching in your own soul concerning the heaven? We, we sang about it. We worship. You're worthy of it all. And you, you catch a little bit of that glimpse of, of heaven and seeing the one who paid it all, Jesus. And you see those who are followers of Jesus. It, you know, sometimes heaven, it's sort of pitched, and sometimes to, to children, sadly enough, that, oh, it's a beautiful place that you go for you, for you. But here's the reality. Heaven isn't foremostly about you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be, be with me where I am. So the heaven aspect foremostly is about the one who is worthy of it all. And there's something inside of us that says there's got to be more than this. And there's something inside of us that we come together to worship like this or to worship online or all kinds of churches throughout this valley and around the world that are worshiping God. Why is that? Because we are spirit beings. And these bodies will die someday. But the scriptures teach we'll be clothed with an immortal body and we will be with him if we are followers of him. But that sort of gets confused today because we're on the street. We're on the street when it comes to answering heaven, who gets there. It, it sort of has two assumptions that are thrown out there. And the assumptions we looked at last week, and I just want to review a little bit last week real quickly because this is like stepping into the middle of the movie. These weeks sort of build on themselves here uh, for this series. The two assumptions we looked at last week were these, that good people go to heaven. Yeah, that's right, right? Good people go to heaven. That's what people believe today. And that I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And, and the reason that we, we have these kinds of assumptions, I mean, there's reasons to believe good people go to heaven. As we said last week, it's, it's just and it's fair. It, all, it only would make sense, right? That if you're good, that you would go to a good place after you die, if you believed in the afterlife, that is, if you believed in a heaven that existed. The second idea was that it supports the notion of a good God. If he's a good God, then, well, he'd, he'd want to have good people around him, don't you think, in heaven? That would make sense. Good people uh, go to heaven. We also think that uh, when we start to look around that we're going to make the cut because we're sort of a good person, right? I mean, look at, look at, right? I'm sort of a good person. So we have that assumption that good people go to heaven. I'm a good person, so I'm going to make the cut. And we also mentioned last week that it sort of motivates people to be good. Well, you want to be good, right? You want to go to heaven. So these are assumptions, uh, reasons for the assumptions that good people go to heaven and I'm a good person. But we poked at that bear last week and realized that uh, it doesn't have a lot of life necessarily to it when it comes to substance and reality of Scripture. And we said one of the primary reasons why the idea that good people go to heaven or that I'm a good person and I'm going to go is uh, that good is a moving target. What does it mean to be good, right? Who's going to define good in what season of life and, and what generation, you know, what they believe good is here versus good in some other part of the country or some other, you know, century before us, whatever it may be. 
I, I remember, and it was even still in my lifetime in one sense, when so I was a little person, and we'd go to church, and we'd hear missionaries speak, and, and the Alliance missionaries were part of the movement of missionaries that go around the world. Uh, some of those that came from uh, some very, very dark places, like the Balim Valley, which was in Indonesia, they talked about, for those people, they thought it was good to eat people. Cannibalism was still reticent, and it's a viable means of vindictiveness or judgment. Or I'm like, what? What? Really? Yeah. Now you're like, that's an extreme example, and you're right. But what about the shifting, moving target today? Whether it concerns issues of sexual morality or right and wrong to be able to get ahead or white lies are fine, you know, it's the bad ones that you don't want to stay away from or deception and you can cheat a little bit under the table at your work but you shouldn't embezzle big money and get in trouble for it. I mean, where is the definition of what is good and good moves from one generation to another. And if I was to ask you this morning, what would be your definition of good to be good enough to go into heaven? What would it be? And we mentioned last week, well, Carrie, we're in church, right? And so we know that it's the Bible. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the standard that tells us what is good. The Bible will let you know, though, if you study it, that you do not make the cut. So I don't know that you want to say the Bible in one sense. I mean, pretty high standard. I mean, going back to the Ten Commandments, did any of us keep all the Ten Commandments, all of our life, other kinds of things? And we mentioned that the Apostle Paul, who wrote one-third of the New Testament, uh, and was a pretty good person by the standards of his culture and all that he did, he came around and he realized after encountering Jesus Christ that, as it says in Romans 10, Uh, 3.10, there is no one righteous. There is no one good or good enough. Not even one. And then at verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. He says in verse 20, therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous or good in God's sight by keeping the works of the law or keeping all the do's and don'ts, if you will. And then a familiar verse for many of us is just a, a few verses later. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one righteous. No one good. Everybody. We're all in there together. Yay, team. We're a bunch of sinners who don't make the cut. How good? Is good enough? I'm not even sure if we answered that question, though, according to that idea, that we can even declare God being good. Because if there's no clear example of how good good enough is to get into heaven from Scripture... I mean, God's not just moving the goalpost. God is hiding the goalpost. God would not be seen as good. Because it's not clear. 
That's why we're sitting here a little fuzzy in our thinking. How good is good enough? I don't know. It's like good this, you know, and then you, you come in with the idea of, you know, is it 70% good? Is it 80% good? You know, what about the difference in generations or my upbringing, my environment? I came up in a good family or I came up in a really bad family. Doesn't God grade on the curve according to that? And then what about age? I mean, when do you have to really start being good? You know, you get smart enough. It, it, it's not there. It's not there. And if it's not there, then I don't know if that's a very good God if he's not clear and he's moving the goalpost. In fact, if I can step into some further thoughts today on this whole subject matter, let's look at the life of Jesus. If only good people go to heaven, then Jesus was mistaken. Jesus was misleading, or perhaps Jesus himself was misled because Jesus never laid out any how good is good enough to get into heaven. Jesus never had this list of rules that you can check off to say, hey, I'm in, or I make the cut, I'm on the, on the high end of the curve, I'm safe with my grade. I get passing marks to come into his presence and declare worthy is the one who paid it all. You see, Jesus, he actually sort of taught the opposite. Jesus taught that bad people can go to heaven, like the thief on the cross, and that good people do not go to heaven. In that culture in the first century, the best, goodest people, if you will, uh, were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who kept all the Old Testament laws or tried to or said that they did, that kind of thing. And Jesus, as he, he went around and talked and interacted with people as it related to the concept of heaven, especially as the New Testament begins to unpack it, because the Old Testament doesn't really articulate all that much, if anything, really, about the afterlife, other than we just all go to Sheol, and it's like, well, what's that afterlife kind of thing? But the New Testament, it starts to really unpack the afterlife, and Jesus in particular, he talks a lot about uh, the life beyond this life, but when he talks about it, he doesn't hand you a list an itemized, like, grocery shopping list. Let me go around and pick that, and I'll get that, I'll get that, I'll get that, and then I'm all good, right? And I can check out and check in to heaven. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he turns to the thief, the thief that hung with him on the cross and said, today you'll be with me in paradise because the thief had acknowledged him. And, and then to the religious leaders who are always sort of, they depict the religious leaders of the day and their, their garbs and everything, and they're just all sort of watching Jesus. I mean, Jesus said some, <laughs> some pretty nasty, hard things to people that everyone else thought, well, they're good. They're going to get in. Was Jesus misled? Was he mistaken? Did somebody mislead him? You see, what Jesus did concerning this question of heaven, who gets in, is he raised the standard. He raised the standard of good enough so high that everyone fell short. I mean, we can simply go to 
his sermon on the mount. In Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the plank out of your own eye and then see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. And he articulates then in verse 12, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus started to do something in his teaching. He raised the standard of how good is good enough. And something like the Sermon on the Mount depicts that and lets us all go, I fail. I'm in the loser category. I got the F grade, whatever it might be. I'm not in there. And he raised the standard so high that people were just confounded by what he was saying. It says that Jesus taught as one who taught with authority, and the authority he taught was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And he began to lay out a a whole different perspective on this idea of how good is good enough and the idea of how you enter in to the heavens after you pass from this life. And I think Jesus probably toyed with them. He teased them some. When he raised the standard, you know, I say to you that whoever looks upon a person with lust in their heart has committed adultery already. What? Because he moved past just the actions to the attitudes and and the thoughts. And and you start going down that path, you go, whoa, yeah, it's true what Paul said, you know, all sinned, right? Man, that's me. And Jesus, here he is, teaching with them. And then, don't, don't you think if you were listening to Jesus teach some of this, maybe especially as he walked through that Sermon on the Mount, you, you would just, with jaw drop, go, well, there's no hope! Who's good enough to go to heaven? And Jesus, probably not in a mean way, probably just smiled and walked away. He was a master teacher. And a master teacher gets his pupils to open up to their presuppositions. And I think if Jesus showed up in physical form today and went around from church to church and taught or taught on a tree, he would do what he did there in the first century. He would just point out that there's no one good. And if you're going off the idea that you know, good people get into heaven, then none of us get into heaven. Take care. It's... And maybe even those who thought they were good enough, he prodded and he poked it more, and he began to unpack the whole idea as mentioned here and what I just read, that you have mistreated other people. And that, in and of itself, is pointing to the indication that there's no uh, ultimate good in your heart. How many of you have ever mistreated, you don't need to raise your hands, have ever mistreated another person? Um, Maybe you said something about that person, 
that you knew when you said it, you shouldn't probably be talking that way about them. Yeah. But part of you felt good by saying it. And the other part of you went, I probably shouldn't have said that. How many of you have done somebody wrong to your own benefit? Maybe you slighted them so that you could be able to get to the front of the line or some other kinds of thing in life. I don't know. There's not a single person in this whole room who would say, unless you're really naive and you're deceived, I don't know, that you've never mistreated another person. What Jesus started to do with his people, for them to understand there wasn't goodness there as he moved it away from the realm of just maybe your beliefs or your actions. He moved it into the idea of attitudes and those things, but he flipped it. He flipped it from being the vertical thing to be horizontal. And he said, how are you treating one another? For how you treat one another is saying something about your love for God. And man, he was looking into the eyes of the Pharisees, Sadducees, other religions like, man, they just are not treating people well. That's why the masses flocked to him, because there was this compassion that came from him with how he treated them, and that he loved them, even though he said hard and sharp words. Jesus wanted us as human people to not be saying how much we measure up according to what we think is on the list of do's and don'ts. But let's look horizontally at how we're treating other people. For when you sin against someone God loves, you sin against God. It's probably one of the hardest things for us to learn and keep before us on a daily basis, especially when you head back to work tomorrow, or you go to school, or you just hit the interstates and you're driving with a bunch of crazy people like I was this weekend. It's your thoughts and your attitudes related to other people that indicate the brokenness and the sinfulness of our own heart. And Jesus wanted us to love other people. The two commandments, right, that he summed everything up in. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the horizontal aspect of your love for other people indicates your love for God. And Jesus unpacked this as he would go around preaching in those days that he walked on this earth, getting people to think differently especially if they were self-righteous kinds of individuals who thought that they were good enough to be in God's heaven. And he says, look how you treat other people. If you sin against someone else, you sin against God. If we actually would have taken that advice of Jesus and rolled it out for every century, every millennium now since Jesus was here, do you think our world would look any different? Yeah. Especially when you see headline news these days, right? And the brokenness and the fighting and the hurting, and it's not just about the wars, it's about what happens on our own streets, our own neighborhoods. When you sin against someone God loves, you are sinning against God, but it's, it's pointing to a brokenness that's a part of our life. And so the question how good is good enough, 
we have to realize that if we're going to try to answer that, that we're in a quandary. You see, good is a moving, confusing target. As long as we view good as a bargaining chip for our benefit. Ah, I'm good enough. Hey, look at me. Look at the person next to me. I'm good. I did that. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Am I in, God? It's a moving, confusing target. The subject of good is. But good sits uncomfortably still when it comes to what is good for others, especially as it relates to how they treat us. Isn't that true? Well, I can tell you who's good and who's not. That person that did that to me, that was just bad. Or they undermined me, or they didn't believe me. They went behind my back. Not only did they go behind my back, but they also put a knife in my back one time. You see, we can define good real quick when it comes from how we think other people treat us. But how about us treating other people? It's a moving target, the subject of good is, as long as we stay away from seeing good being defined on a horizontal level in how we treat one another. So, when Jesus spoke these words and they all looked sort of downcast, he did two things. When he took the old system out with the rules and regulations. And when he told everybody, you know, in one sense that there's no one righteous, no one good. He leveled the playing field. He leveled the playing field for everyone. And then he put hope in the middle of it. You see, the bad news, the Jesus version of good, makes all of us bad. That's the bad news. And how good is good enough? If you're going to answer that question, we're all in the same boat. Level playing field. But Jesus steps in with the hope. Because on the subject of how good is good enough? This was the answer. Jesus. Jesus is good enough. Jesus is good enough because he himself was the essence of good. And what he did not just his acts of kindness and his miracles, but what he did through the cross and the resurrection. He, he was ultimately good. Scriptures say that Jesus, he was tempted in all such ways as we are tempted, but he was without sin. Of course, the Apostle Paul, you just got to love him because he was one of those Pharisees, those righteous people. He had, he had the credentials to get into heaven, if you would. And, and, and he, he uh, went around and told people so. In fact, there's places in Scripture where he just sounds like, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Roman citizen. I did these things. I kept the law. He was like, look at me. <laughs> and then he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to him. 
his life was radically turned because Paul would say, yeah, I didn't treat people very well. In fact, he stood by why people were murdered. He tracked down the people that were starting to follow Jesus and gave them a tremendously difficult time, imprisoned some of them, and, and he knew but then Jesus showed up and Jesus flipped his whole thinking on this thing of how good is good enough. 1 Timothy 1.15, it says this, this is, this is Paul saying this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Any of you want to try to take the chief title today? How good is good enough has never been one of your questions because you live in the realm of knowing that you're a bad person and some of the stuff you've done or some of the stuff you're involved in right now and some of the stuff you're being tripped up with, not just activity-wise, but in your headspace and thought life is like, yeah, I'm not a very good person. Well, you're not going to trump Paul as being a chief of sinners, but he himself declared himself that. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians Beautiful stuff, friends, if we can unpack this a little bit today. Extend it probably into next week. Paul said, I beg you. I plead with you. On behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that he might become the righteousness of God in him. You see how that's being unpacked? He's begging us, on, but on behalf of Christ, he's pleading with us even here today through this scripture. You got to be reconciled to God. You don't, you don't get into heaven if you're not reconciled to God, but it's not by your own righteousness and what you do or don't do. Just chuck that whole system of thinking. It's not that we're not called to do good and to, to be good, as Jesus taught, but that's not the means of being reconciled to God. What God did was he showed up, as we said last week. He showed up and he did something about the human predicament. There is no universal standard for good that's good enough. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, it says in Romans. As it says here, he made him who knew no sin perfect to be sin on our behalf. He took our sin on himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. His goodness comes into us through Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 33-31, it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. Those are big words, Right? Righteousness means his goodness, his uprightness has now been applied to us. Sanctification, being able to be set apart, holy, pure, 
has been applied to us, redeemed, brought from death to life. As it is written, let one who boasts, boast in all their good works. Is that what it says? <laughs> let one who boasts, boast in the who? The Lord. That's who we boast in because it's His righteousness. I'm going to give you a theological term here. Maybe I'll unpack it more next week. I'm not sure fully where next week's going, but I do know we needed three weeks in this series. So this word, maybe you've heard it before, is what these verses are referring to theologically, and the term is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. In other words, the righteousness of Christ is placed inside of you. And when it's placed inside of you, then you are upright, righteous, and good enough to get into God's good and perfect heaven. Outside of his imputed righteousness in your life, you and I have no hope. No hope at all. So, the idea of good people going to heaven. Friends, good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And that forgiveness comes when you bend your knee you repent, you turn from your sinfulness. You acknowledge that you are a sinner. Not to grovel in all the bad stuff you've done. It's not like, hey, wear sackcloth and ashes and repent and wail. For... No, it's just a mindset that says, I am not a good person. And I'm definitely not a good enough person ever to get into God's heaven. But Jesus says good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And that's why in Luke 22 verse 33 Jesus had been accused. He had been tried. He had been beaten and whipped. And he had carried his cross. And it says that when they came to the place called the skull where they erected the crosses. They crucified him there. Along with the criminals. One on his right. The other on his left. And then Jesus said these words. Looking down from that cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. Father, forgive all of them. They're not good enough to get into your heaven. Justice, fairness, they're doomed. But I'm asking you, Father in heaven, that you would forgive them 
for they know not what they are doing. Do you know what that's called? It's called this. Grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And mercy. Not getting what you do deserve. Grace and mercy. (laughs) That's why we're here today. Singing, proclaiming from the word. Whatever place that you're in, whatever bad news you're under, whether it's about your own life, maybe someone else's life, I don't know. But today, we share the gospel. And the gospel is good news. Good news. Religion, if you're into religion, that system, it's about what you do. But if you change from that system, encourage your friends to change from that system, and you move to Jesus, with Jesus, it's not do. With Jesus, it's done. Done. There at the cross, through the resurrection, he paid the penalty for all of our sins. He took it upon himself, the one who Knew no sin, took sin upon himself. He died for the penalty of our sin, but he also died in place of our sin, but he gave us his place. He imputed unto us righteousness. That's why Paul would later say, I am crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. But what? Christ lives in me. Which system are you under? The do-good system or the Jesus-done system? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preach to you. Before you welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it, it is this good news. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. I passed on to you what is most important, what had been passed on to me, Paul said, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scriptures said. Then he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, appeared to his brother James, for 500 and some people, he appeared then to the chief of sinners, Paul, Jesus was alive. And what he did on that cross made the provision for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not about being good. But have you been forgiven? What are you trusting in to get to heaven? I'm going to ask the ushers to take their places. We're going to spend some time thanking God for what he did on that cross the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body. And I also want to give an invitation. I want to give an invitation for you if you've never had the opportunity to be forgiven, to change the systems from the do-good to the love Jesus. If you don't have a communion cup, uh, raise your hand and they'll pass them around. 
If you're a believer in Christ, I want everybody to be able to have a communion cup as we share in these closing moments of worship. <laughs> I had the opportunity with my wife and Levi and there were some other friends we met there from this church to go to a concert on Friday night in Escondido. Kane, I don't know if you've heard that group before or not. Two sisters and a brother and they had a whole entourage and a couple buses and semi-trucks and it was loaded up and the room was packed down and it was filled. It was a good concert, a good time. But my wife and I and Levi, we didn't have any tickets to get in. They said it was sold out, I guess. But we have a close friend who was with the group touring and was part of their entourage and taking care of some of the things that make those big concerts happen. And so there were these lines outside of the venue, and we're like, that's a long line. You know, stand in that line or not. And I said to my wife, I said, uh, Have you texted our friend? Her name's Callie. She said, Yeah. And as she came to the door, she motioned for us. She gave us big stickers to put on. We skipped the whole line. And she walked us right in and told us maybe how we could get accommodations because it was packed out and that kind of thing. And so this question, as we come to a close here, I... I just want to ask you, who are you trusting to get in? It wasn't going to be by any good works we had or shouting and yelling, hey, we're here, we showed up. It's because we knew someone. And the analogy falls through in some different places for sure, but it's that idea that if you know Christ, Christ says, come on in. Because he looks at you and he doesn't see your sin. He sees your righteousness because it's His righteousness. And so as we close, before we take communion, for those of you, I just want to give an invitation. Maybe you've heard this message kind of thing unpacked for many times, maybe 21 times, but it's a weird thing. Sometimes when it's unpacked for the 21st time, or maybe it's 10 times you've heard it, and the 11th time is like, yeah, I sort of dials in there <laughs> I want you to know that today you can be saved if you will you can receive God's forgiveness and I framed up this prayer I just want to walk through a lot of times we ask you to pray a prayer and it's like what am I praying I don't know if I really mean those words but if you've never crossed that line of faith and been forgiven to receive Christ's righteousness in your own life so you can not only get into heaven but live a full and abundant life today, then would you consider praying this prayer here this morning? Heavenly Father, I have mistreated people you love. I have sinned. I realize I'm not good enough for your perfect heaven. And so I repent and I turn from my sin. I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. And so I accept Jesus as my Savior. 
I'm no longer trusting in my goodness. I'm trusting in your undeserved goodness to me. And I accept Jesus' death as the once and for all payment for my sin. I believe Jesus rose from the dead and can live in my life by his spirit. Thank you for coming into my life as my Savior, Lord, and goodness. Amen. As we prepare for communion and as you who've maybe never crossed that line of accepting Jesus as your Savior, I want us all to repeat this prayer together because it's talking about a transference of trust, a trust in good things and being good enough to trust in Christ and his goodness and what he did on your behalf, his grace and his mercy. If you've never prayed that prayer before as we pray it here together, know this, if you mean it from your heart, then you will be saved and you will have your name written down in the Lamb's book of life for eternity because it's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. As we prepare for communion, and if you want to pray that prayer for the first time in your heart with sincerity, let's pray it together. You ready? Here we go. Heavenly Father, we're going to start over again. You're going to go right along with me. Heavenly Father, I have mistreated people you love. I have sinned. I realize I am not good enough for your perfect heaven. I repent and turn from my sin. I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I am no longer trusting in my goodness. I'm trusting in your undeserved goodness to me. I accept Jesus' death as the once and for all payment for my sin. I believe Jesus rose from the dead and can give life in my life by his spirit. Thank you for coming into my life as my Savior, Lord, and goodness. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to encourage you to take the Connect card that's in front of you and just mark on the back, I'm committing my life to Christ. You can place it in the offering baskets in a second. But I want all of us who are believers in Christ this morning to take this cup and to take the bread that's in the bottom of the cup. And I'm going to give you moments for you to thank Jesus Christ for what he has D-O-N-E done. Paul said that we are to uh, do this because Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup which represents my shed blood, the new covenant, that old system of do good stuff, gone. The new covenant through me. Do this often. And as often as you do it, you remember me until I come again, Jesus said. Partake of the bread and the cup as you feel led.
Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are worthy. The one who is slain. Through the power of your resurrection, everyone in this room or watching online has hope today. You leveled the playing field when you said no one is good enough. But then you gave us the hope by taking our place, dying on the cross, being raised from the grave so that we could have your life come in our life. For those who made that decision today, Lord, bless their life. Let them know that it's a beginning of a, a beautiful journey. Challenging at times, but a beautiful journey of being your child. For those of us who have been on the journey for a long time, may we never, ever, ever lose sight of the power and the beauty of your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to encourage us. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings that uh, we continue to pray for our friends who need to know Jesus. And we build a relationship with them and we share the good news. And maybe invite them to come with you because we're going to unpack it more again next week. If you want to give of your tithes and offerings, you can give through the baskets or by texting that simple word AWAKING to 77977 or given through our church website. I want to highlight next Sunday as an incredible Sunday to invite your friends to. We are going to have a baptism service here. If you made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, whether it was here this morning or maybe recent weeks, months, years of your life, but you've never publicly acknowledged your faith, I want to invite you to mark the back of that Connect card or come talk to me or just email info at theawakening.church if you're online. We're going to be setting up a baptism tank here. Next week is a baptism service, and we're going to be celebrating. I know at least a couple people were celebrating their new life in Christ. If you'd like to be baptized, and I believe if Jesus went to the cross and hung publicly on a cross for you, and he's your Savior, then you need to acknowledge him publicly before other people. Jesus taught that. Then next Sunday night, believe it or not, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And so we're having our Thanksgiving uh, potluck. Come with your favorite uh, big, large family dish. And uh, we are going to just party together and have a good time of community, getting to know one another. And that's at 5.30 p.m. next Sunday night. So plan in advance for that. You can go home from morning service, bring the stuff back for that night. And then women on December the 9th, it's coming up. Christmas time's coming up. There's a holiday event and an art painting thing that's... Uh, up there, as mentioned on the screen here, your sign-up can happen next week, and tickets will be sold for that. There's a limit of 40 people, I think, that can be a part of this art painting thing. Or you can text or email dawn at theawakening.church. But next week, you can sign up for that. And then I just want to say that if there's a need for prayer by anybody here today, just invite you to come to the area up to the right of the stage and... Pray for whatever your need is or if you have questions spiritually about how to be a believer or that you made a prayer of commitment, you can come and pray with someone publicly. And instead of a benediction, we have just this highlight reminder of the special weekend that we're a part of with Veterans Day as we close. You served. 
When others were hesitant to answer the call, and when your friends stayed home, you served. Mile after mile, day after day, you became the best you could be, so freedom could count on you. You served. When our nation needed you the most, you were there. You sacrificed months without your family. You missed birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. You served. When you laced up your boots for the last time, we welcomed you back with pride. You're among us, humbly knowing you've lived another life of courage and sacrifice. Never asking for praise, never asking for thanks. You served. This Veterans Day, we honor you. We thank you for your courage and for your dedication. If I could ask, I want every veteran to stand who's ever served in any arm of the military service. Would you stand across this room? Thank you for your service. And I tell you what, some people ask, where did that greeting time go at church? Because we sometimes have plopped it there in the middle. It is now greeting time. So you saw who stood. Would you please greet these people that were part of the armed services or still are and greet them and greet one another around you. Have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.